0: feeling or recognition we all have and we were born with that we it was not learned or acquired or uh, inculcated in schools but this is innate it was uh, was we were born with that insight that if we put out funds on loan or invest funds and so on, then we pre- if other things being equal, ceteris paribus, cetiris paribus, other things are all the same, then we all prefer which type of investment, which type of loans, from the point of view of the creditor? Short. 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 And, and that's very logical. I already uh, pointed out. Why? Because if we put out funds for a shorter period, then the funds are at risk for a shorter period, which means that the risks are reduced, whereas if we put out funds for a longer period, then the funds are at risk for a longer time, during a longer period of time, more Uh, untoward developments could happen, which would uh, result in more losses. So this is a natural human uh, condition. We are all mortal, and we know it, and perhaps if we were immortal like the Olympian gods, It would be different, but there's no point speculating on that. What would happen if we were immortal? We are mortal, period. That's a fact we all have to accept. And because of this, we have preference, a liquidity preference, which means we prefer the shorter term other things equal, because, for instance, if interest rates are higher for the longer term, that is no longer ceteris paribus, then there is an extra force operating on us, on society, which may change the picture. But if all other things are the same, we prefer the shorter uh, uh, maturities when it comes to surveying all possible investments. Now then there is a marginal liquidity preference. I'm not going to uh, go through this because uh, you all have it in uh, before you. it's chapter 7 and you can read it you can develop a very similar argument what we did for time preference namely rank all the people all the investors according to uh, their liquidity preference, but there are lots of different liquidity preferences. We are looking for the one which is decisive at this moment. And this particular liquidity preference belongs to the marginal investor, and the marginal investor's liquidity preference is what we call the marginal. Uh, liquidity preference. So that's something should be familiar, we don't have to repeat this. And then you you bring it uh, and connect it with the yield curve and, uh, and so on. And then the rise and fall of yield curve, something already discussed. The principle of liquidity preference is stating that if a saver is confronted with the choice between two bonds that are identical in every respect except for maturity, then he will choose the shorter maturity. That's, that's missing, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, we have, we have talked enough about that. Now, rather than keep talking on my part, I would like to invite my, my two uh, observers who studied this also. In the, so, who is going to start?
1: Alex? Um, yeah, I mean, I can just do the historical, historical version. Um, To be fair, I'm not an expert on the sinking fund. I actually never took a deep look at it, but I have sort of come across it in everything I study. I've I've written a lot about um, uh, the British in the 18th century and early 19th century, and specifically the British Fiscus, so I'm sort of familiar with the whole thing, how the entire system worked, so in that respect, I know what I'm talking about. the two texts that I would refer to, the first one is Douglas North and Weingas, they wrote a paper in which they argued that, um, the, uh, it's basic, uh, to put it simply, uh, the inst- institutions uh, explain why people were willing to lend money to Great Britain um, during the 18th century. Um, there's another, and then there's another text, which is a, uh, not as theoretical, but it, it, by a very good historian, his name is John Brewer, um, he wrote a book called Cities of Power, and I read this thing in my undergrad, and his conclusion, he, he explains that the reason the British became the new, uh, the new hegemon after the Spanish was that they were able to tax um, <coughs> Their people more effectively than the French. The only other people that could, the only other country that could have um, ascended to become a, a Western hegemon would have been France, but they had a very poor tax system, a very incredulous tax system. And base, and you could sort of see it, um, why this happened because the French Revolution came at the end of the 18th century, sort of a sign of how bad the system was actually working in France. Um, now, what I know. I, I can't specifically address the sinking fund in the 18th century, but um, I, I know that the important, what was important about um, the British Fiscus in the 18th century is that they had a well-run bureaucracy, it was chained by Parliament, and that's this is one of the themes in um, uh, classical liberal history, right, is that in Glorious Revolution, 1688, Parliament Finally, gets gets ascendancy in the ascendancy in the political arena, and they're actually able to determine how much revenue the king can use and how much revenue the king can collect. So prior to this time, the king could arbitrarily uh, tax uh, and collect uh, money from uh, his, his population without consent. After 1688, there were the actually laws that had to be passed by Parliament, and they could only um, tax the population. Um, did based on how, on what laws Parliament passed. To put it, uh, and, and this is sort of one of these are extra. Um, I don't know how else to put it. Uh, barriers that prevented um, a tyrannical state from overtaxing its population. In France, for instance, um, the king would uh, sell rights to tax the population to nobles. So. You, and So he would raise money by um, going to an owner who lived to say in, the, in the south of France and say, here, if you give me X amount of money, then you can tax this portion of the population for X amount of time. And of course he got money right away to raise whatever more he needed to immediately. But the system sort of broke down after a while because he would sold the rights to tax the population after a long point. tax farming.
0: tax farming. exactly. The
1: British didn't do this, though. They had a much more efficient system for doing it. But that's just a small portion of the argument. Um, in, in, in the grand scheme of things, the British were able to establish a system where they could raise money to finance, usually um, uh, like, uh, the 18th century is generally known for having a, a large, a, a high number of wars relative to the 18th century. And one of the reasons the British succeeded is, that, is because they were able to finance these wars. One, uh, one a, one a, and, and one poor, one uh, component of being able to finance these wardrobes by is by raising money through issuing government bonds. And one component of making government bonds sort of credible is by having a sinking fund. And that's how and I know that it existed, but I can't give you the details of how much was in it, um, how the changes in the amount fluctuated over time. I just know that it did exist.
0: Well, thank you
2: very much. Um, I'd like to make a point here uh, regarding the English taxation system. The, um, at a certain point, um, and this is very critical in the history of finance, of government finance, is that um, previously the bankers used to loan money to the monarchs, the kings, the royal houses. And at a certain point, um, they switched this obligation from the king to the people. All right? Now, I don't know how that happened. Um, But it certainly did happen. And then what happened is is that because of the Napoleonic Wars, this is where the the increase in the tax came in, because of the burden of the Napoleonic Wars, they owed so much that the parliament had to institute a temporary tax on the English people, which was the world's first income tax. And like most temporary taxes, it stayed. All right, And the financing of the wars, was, the government financing of the wars was really brought about and developed by the Rothschilds at this time because they were, they were the experts in government financing, the government bonds. And so you had basically a threefold system whereby the whole population, the productivity of society itself, sat behind the obligation of the, of the government of whatever the government paid, which was a, a lot more better than just the whims of a monarch to pay or not to pay. Now you had the, the people on the hook to pay that government obligation. And then you had a, 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 a tax on all the income of the people. Now, the truth is, you're right, that the English really had a very efficient tax system, far more efficient than the French. And so you could posit the difference between the English and the French tax system, but by the same token, you could posit the difference between the American and the English tax system. The Americans saw what the English were doing. The Americans, especially Jefferson, saw how the English taxed their people into perpetuity, as he put it. And so, although it was much more efficient, it was much more onerous. And that's where the American experiment was so very, very different. The American experiment put the the people the power of to accept even taxation on the people themselves. The British had a stranglehold on it, and 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 you know did quite well with it. I,
1: um, if I can add to the discussion, um, in fact, there's a statistic that prior to and um, this is by a guy named I think Edward Perkins. He's a historian of American colonial history. He's an economic historian. Um, he claimed that prior to, um, I think, I want to say 1764, when the British began collecting taxes for fighting the French and Indian War from 1756 to 1763, Um, the Americans were taxed, uh, I want to say, about 2 to 3 percent versus their British counterparts were taxed at approximately 20 to 25 (laughs) percent. Um, The justification for all these taxes that came after the French and Indian Wars were that, well, the Americans, we defended you from the French, now we're going to tax you. Um, Now, even though they did have a relatively low tax burden prior to the Revolutionary War, um, after the Revolutionary War, the American government taxed its own people I think, in, I think in the bands of something between 10 and 15%. So they tax, each, they tax themselves much more than they, than they would have if they would have stayed under the British for prior to the Revolutionary War. But that's not that, that's not that important. Um, I want to say something else about the sinking fund. Uh, I just did a little homework really quick. And actually, Hamilton proposed a sinking fund uh, as part of the uh, plan to institute a first national bank. So there was an existence of a sinking fund um, the only thing is, uh, the First National Bank had its own problems, and actually, there's a sort of a brief panic in 1792. Uh, I was just reading it now beforehand, and where uh, li- literally mo- a lot of these bo- bondholders um, went bankrupt because it was just a, a, like a brief boom and bust cycle. But I just want to sort of point out that a sinking fund was part of this plan to sort of justify issuing bonds by the American government right after it was uh, created in 1789. I just wanted
0: to Thank you, thank
1: you. Um,
3: I, I don't actually have that much to say on. I, it was uh, marginal productivity of capital, ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now's not the time for that. But um, I have to admit that I think that the principle of liquidity preference is uh, one of J.M. Keynes's smartest observations, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, it's hard to deny him that benefit. And um, remember when we went through the process of how the monetary system evolves when you have gold at the anchor and the various high orders of credit. It's quite natural that uh, you, it's quite easy to show that the, the spread for the higher order credits, the bid and ask spread. For the higher order credits will be wider than uh, in the lower order credits, uh, lower order credit of the monetary system. Um, And I think that you can only say, in as much as so far as a principle is concerned, that this (coughs) is the only principle that uh, you can say with confidence is correct. Is that you would rather have something, you would rather have your gold returned to you more quickly. Uh, than more slowly. Um, so that naturally means that there will be a marginally higher bid for Keteris Paribus for shorter term instruments than there are longer term instruments. Okay. Now, this is an area of work for me, but I think Ludwig von Mises saying that future goods are always at a discount to present goods is sort of like a, a warped misunderstanding of liquidity preference, in my view. Yes, you can show that if the principle of liquidity preference is true in certain cases, that the present good will be at a premium to the future good. But it is not necessarily the case. Okay? Um, so. We should move from this concept of future goods always being worth less than present goods to the concept of liquidity preference. So that's all I have to say on on the subject.
2: The floor is open. Keith.
4: I I think in light of this, I want to refine my thought on the slope of that flat curve. The slope there is actually the change in liquidity preference over time. So it has to be positive because liquidity preference is real. But if everything is in in a clean market based on gold and there's a sinking fund, the liquidity preference will be small. And then Sandeep makes a really interesting point. The data spreads are getting wider also, which is apart from the market price, as it were, the spreads are widening, which is interesting. I already
0: commended you on this thought because I was struggling with myself saying that uh, the uh, normal curve is not so normal after all, but on the other hand the flat curve has its own problems of instability and I was trying to find the correct answer to that problem. And I, I didn't find it, but uh, thanks to Keith's contribution, I think I'm closer to the solution now, because I think the answer is that, that narrow deviation between the completely flat uh, yield curve and the uh, slightly flat yield curve, provided that this spread is within that range where the speculators are locked out, there is not enough profit for them, and therefore they are not interested in, uh, in uh, borrowing short and lending long, which is the big interdiction in all economics. We derive a lot of uh, problems from that one cardinal sin, <laughs> lending, uh, borrowing short and lending long. If that is small enough, then we have the ideal situation. And I think that is the uh, proper answer. Now, further questions? Are there any more questions here?
4: There is an inflationary expectation in all these things. Or uh, we are talking strictly only at the gold standard.
3: Early under gold. But
4: if, I, if I look at this liquidity preference, this particular chapter, mm. You are relaxing some, uh, some. Uh, if you go by the first paragraph, you are relaxing some parameters over here. The parameters don't include the global standard, it, it includes something which is closer to reality.
3: Well, what specifically are you talking about?
4: Uh, we shall now relax this <coughs> restriction in order to confirm to reality. Uh, since time immoral, if you read the entire paragraph, it sounds to me that uh, maybe you are, are going uh, out of uh, gold standard and something near to what today's market is. So if today's market has sinking fund and under gold standard, sinking fund. Under gold standard, if you have a sinking fund, I agree with whatever has been said. But in today's time, you have to have a sinking fund. If you want to have a sinking fund without a gold standard, where is the inflationary expectation?
3: Well, the central bank is one huge sinking fund if you, if you want to take it to the modern-day um, extrapolation. Mm-hmm. Um, where are the inflationary... I, I don't yeah. understand what you mean. The inflationary <laughs> expectation is whatever in whatever I'm willing to bid for a bond.
4: Yeah, but then, then there cannot be a flat yield curve. There has no, to but be but a flat yield curve.
3: No, in in the No, in the current environment, of course that will not be the case but even under a gold standard it would still be the case though except it would be it would be so small as to not be able to furnish any trades on it you would not be able to borrow short and lend long here for a margin the margin would be taken by the bid offer spreads listen if it
4: this under gold standard i completely agree i'm not uh, disputing anything yeah Okay, So, what you are saying is that whatever we have discussed is completely under standard,
3: Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
4: yeah. And why is flat yield curve less stable than the upper, uh, upward sloping yield curve?
3: Why, why is this less stable than this? Yeah, yeah I, I,
4: uh, flat yield curve is less stable yield curve than upward sloping because it is an indication
3: of panic. <laughs> no, no, I think the professor was saying Inverted. Inverted, inverted. inverted is less stable. Okay,
4: even if you have an inverted yield
3: curve, Mm.
4: for some time because of uh, extra demand for money at the shorter end of the curve Mm. as compared to the longer end of the curve, Mm. because longer end of the curve has something to do with capital formation Mm. and shorter end of the curve has something to do with working capital formation, Mm. okay. So even for some time Mm. you have uh, a shorter end of the curve means inverted yield curve scoping, inverted yield curve, is it necessary that it has to be a panic?
3: Well, yes, because (laughs) anyone that's funded their long-term assets on short-term money no longer has an arbitrage, profitable arbitrage. It's now costing them more to fund their long-term assets than the long-term assets are yielding. So unless you're sort of a bit psychotic and you want to destroy your capital, then this will cause all of the irregular trades, irregular positioning on the yield curve to unwind. It has to. You can't pay two percent and get one percent without destroying your equity base after you know, however many Does that make sense? I mean if you're paying two
4: percent for working capital and you've and you made capital formation with one percentage
3: point. No, no, forget about that. I'm talking about the people who have induced the yield curve to invert in the first place. Hmm. Those people, which is the, if you, if you think about the total way that financial fiduciary assets in the current system are financed, they're financed in that way on short term money.
4: Which people will induce the yield curve to uh, invert?
3: So, if the yield curve inverts, then how can the banker make any money? It's not possible.
4: So, banker is a small part of the economy. No, it's not.
3: The, the, I'm talking about the whole financial assets of the whole globe. They're financed by this irregular form of credit. It's not just some narrow part of the banking fraternity that's doing some higgledy-piggledy, under the, under the covers trading. This is the financial system as we have it today. The whole, Every single bond of a long-term duration has been financed with credit of, the, of a shorter and incorrect duration. But so
4: then if there's a destruction of capital, wouldn't it lead to inflation going
3: up? That's another topic, which we will have later on. But uh, <laughs> it could be hyper-deflation ratio, you know. But
2: I think we should move on to. Rudy, did you have a question here? Well, I
0: think it's been answered pretty well by this discussion. Thank you. Okay. All right, then we can have a break now. Then we'll take a break. Unless there are more questions. Okay. (laughs)